0: Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you claim... that that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, church. Oh, you recognize me. I'm wearing long pants. Uh, Yes, if you don't know me, my name is Mitch. I am one of the apprentices here. And yeah, it is a huge joy uh, and a big blessing to be able to bring you God's word today. Uh, If you do have your Bibles with you, it'd be handy to keep them open at Revelation uh, chapter 2, looking at verses 1 to 7. For the last few months, we've been looking at Ephesians, uh, a letter that has been written by the Apostle Paul to the church of Ephesus, roughly around 60 AD. Now, the purpose of this letter was to remind them of God, of Jesus, of their calling. It was also to instruct and encourage them in their faith and in their Christian life. We've been able to look at these instructions and see these reminders and be encouraged ourselves. But wouldn't it be amazing if we were to somehow able to see how the Ephesians went? To go ahead in time, starting at 60 AD, so still back in time for us, but forward in time for them. Maybe sometime around 95 AD to see if they actually listened to Paul. Man, if only that were possible. Wait. Did someone say that we can do that? That's what we're doing today?
0: What?
1: That's right. By using the power of the written, recorded word, we get to jump ahead about 30 years to the book of Revelation, where we will get to enjoy a segment of Where Are They Now? Or, keeping up with the Ephesians, I couldn't peek between the two. Alright, let's set the scene for our passage. Uh, The Apostle John has just been exiled to the island of Patmos due to his Christian missionary activities. Now, this is where John has a vision of Jesus, and Jesus shows and tells him things, and he instructs John to write them on a scroll and to send it to the seven churches. In this vision, John sees the glorified Christ, and it is an intense image. Jesus is walking amongst seven lampstands, and he has seven stars in his right hand which he himself explains in chapter 1, verse 20, uh, is the seven churches and the seven angels of those churches. So seven letters to seven churches. Uh, We're going to be looking at the first letter today, the letter to the Ephesians. And it is exciting, uh, Jesus himself addressing these churches. Just imagine, you open your letterbox, and therein lies an envelope. You flip it over to see who the sender is, and in big, bold letters it says... Lord J. Christ. You rip it open to find a report card from Jesus. Sure, I would probably break into a nervous sweat because I suspect I wouldn't be getting straight A's, but I'd still be very excited to hear from Jesus. Now, these words, like all words from Jesus, are precious treasure. Not only are his words relevant and specific to the churches that he addressed, but we can see our churches in these letters today also. Uh, In verse 1, Jesus instructs John to write to the angel of the church in Ephesus and then describes himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, each letter, Jesus describes himself in a different way, and he no doubt has purpose behind this. He is reminding the Ephesians that he holds all the church leaders in his right hand, and he walks amongst his churches. The bottom line, he is sustaining them, and he is with them. And isn't that encouraging for us to remember? I think it would have been for the Ephesians reading this, because Jesus is reminding them that he holds them, and that he is with them through it all. Wouldn't that have been just a great reminder to trust him? And in trusting him, they would read these next two verses, verses 2 and 3 where Jesus provides commendation. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. Jesus, acknowledging the deeds of the Ephesians. Jesus, saying he knows, implying that he sees and observes the churches. The deeds, hard work, and perseverance of the Ephesians have not gone unnoticed by Christ. He also acknowledges that the church does not tolerate wicked people and that they have tested false apostles and have exposed them to be false. On top of all this, Jesus recognizes the hardships they have endured for him, for his name, and they have not grown weary. Wow. Ephesus, they seem impressive. I'm impressed. This is a strong church. They work hard. They test and weed out false teachers and false doctrines. They don't crumble under the pressure of difficult times and testing. I remember looking for a new church back in the day. This was a church that I was looking for. A church where I knew there was going to be faithful, biblical preaching and teaching. A church that took things seriously. Where wickedness was addressed openly and rooted out. Where people worked hard and not only had the intent, but the will to action. Now, I don't want to gas up our Presbyterian churches too much, as every church is not without its imperfections, of course, but I kind of get some Presbyterian vibes from Ephesus. And you don't have to agree with me on that, but regardless, Ephesus seems to be a church which you'd be aiming to be like. They toil for the Lord. They work hard, are stable, committed, have a great amount of endurance. They don't tolerate unbiblical false teachings that harm the church. And what's more, they're doing all these things for the right reason. They're doing it for Christ's namesake. And we as a church and us as Christians should be aiming to work and toil harder, endure longer for the Lord. Not because we want him to save us, but because he already has. I'll say that again because it is an important distinction. We should be aiming to serve the Lord more, not because we want him to save us, but because he already has saved us. He knows. (laughs) But we live in an age of comfort where we don't have to do more than we ought or more than we want. At times, we can have a lazy approach to our faith and to our church. And maybe that's why the Western church has struggled to get people back in church after COVID. I hear from a lot of my friends from other churches and their pastors that their churches lost a lot of people during COVID, and they didn't come back because they were too busy or too complacent at home. Now, if you're listening to me online from home, please hear me. I'm not saying you are wrong in doing so. Many people have good reason to be watching online, and that is why we provide that service. But it is just so sad to hear that people don't come back to church. The same danger of complacency lies in churches that are unwilling to call out false teaching, letting certain unbiblical ideas slide just to avoid discomfort that is also a sad image. And it's a good reminder for us as 21st century Christians that this lacklustre approach, our unwillingness to call out false teaching, to call out sin, to kill the things that turn us away, and others, from Christ. This approach would just make no sense to a 1st century Christian. The idea of a Christian who is comfortable in this world, complacent in their faith, not seeking to go closer to God would be madness to them. These Ephesians, they're vigilant in their service. But hard work and endurance is not the only credit in the Ephesians' ledger. There is another huge plus. You may be wondering about those addressed in verse 6, the Nicolaitans. While there isn't a bunch of information given to us, uh, upon reading the context that they're mentioned in and further research, it's most commonly believed that they are some kind of heretical sect within the church. Probably it's something to do with this guy called uh, Nicholas from Antioch, who's mentioned earlier in the Bible, who kind of started on the right track, but seems now to be compromising with the surrounding pagan society. And this compromise is centering around spiritual liberty and leeway. The idea that they had was that because they know they have grace in God, and they know God has done everything for them, They have kind of an excuse to just take all that and run. God will forgive us. Jesus has paid our debt, so we may as well do whatever we want. Whether it's idolizing all kinds of things or dabbling in all sorts of immorality. That was their thinking. That was their practice. And what does God say to the Ephesians about these kinds of people? He says, you hate the practice of these people which I also hate. He actually commends them for that. Now, before going further, it's important to note two things. The first being that the Ephesians are not commended for hating the Nicolaitans, but for hating their practices. And it's so easy to end up doing both. For example, we tend to see it a lot in politics. Both sides don't just hate the ideas or the views of the other, but quite often it's clear that they hate the people that hold those views as well. The second thing to note is that the language of hate is actually used here. There's no shying away from addressing the idea of spiritual license or leeway as being evil and hated. It's food for thought, but let's keep going. So the Ephesian church, they have endurance as hard workers for the Lord, they have discernment, identifying false teachings and practices. This church is hitting all the marks that you want to be hitting. But as you may have noticed there is a very clear, very present feedback sandwich here. Now, what's a feedback sandwich? Well, the other day I bumped into a lady who I hadn't seen in quite a while. She said to me, Mitch, you look so well-rested. I hadn't slept in weeks. She continued with, but I must say, I hate what you're doing with your hair at the moment. Which is a fair comment, but you have to trust the process. And she finished with, "'Oh, but it is good to see that lovely smile again.' And it must have been an unconscious, nervous smile because I didn't know how to reply. Now, that is not a feedback sandwich. That is uh, a personal attack in between two (coughs) fake compliments. Now, a feedback sandwich is a method in which to deliver someone a critique or some negative feedback. You sandwich it in between two slices of positive feedback. The first positive is to disarm you, so you're wide open for the cutting blow of criticism. And the second positive is an attempt to stop the gushing wound from bleeding out by using a Band-Aid, which isn't always effective, probably because we're the ones applying it. But Jesus is perfect, and he does a perfect feedback sandwich here. And we have so far overlooked the meat in the middle. We have looked at the commendation, but now... The condemnation. Despite looking like a very strong church, one we should aspire to be like, Jesus has strong words in verse 4. He says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. And all the other churches reading this go, "Oof, yikes. Earlier in the Bible, when Jesus is asked, What is the greatest commandment? He responds with these words, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Ephesus, such a vision of a strong church, though failing to heed the greatest commandment given to God's people. I want to take you back to some passages we've been looking at the last couple of months. We've been looking at Ephesians, and when Paul first writes them in chapter 1, verse 5, He addresses them by first acknowledging that he has heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all of God's people. Now, there is something about love that we need to address. And it will help us understand the danger that the Ephesians are in. It is important to address love as both a feeling and an action. A noun and a verb. If you think of love as just a feeling without action, then you have a fleeting emotion that comes and goes and doesn't sustain anything long-term. If you think of love as just an action with no emotion, then you have mechanical, cold people ticking off boxes with no intimacy nor passion, and no one wants that, at least not in any kind of relationship that you're invested in. Love requires both action and affection working together in tandem. Marriage is a good example. I'm obviously not married, and probably not qualified to speak on this, but however, I do have heaps of married friends. (laughs) And I have it on good authority that love in marriage is like a sparkler. Those first few seconds, years in case of some marriages, that spark burns so strong that it can survive any gust of wind and not blow out. But then after a time, and sadly not that long often, it burns itself out. And Paul knows that this is the risk here. The love that started out so strong, just like the sparkler, is at risk of burning out. But it really did start out strong. Now, we just saw in chapter 1, verse 5, that the Ephesians have love for all of God's people. But Paul spends the rest of his letter warning, encouraging, inspiring them to maintain that love. It's a fundamental feature of all his prayers. In further writing to them, he goes on, and I'll rattle off some verses so you can kind of get the picture. Uh, Ephesians 3:17, And I pray that you be rooted and established in love. 4.2, bearing with one, with one another in love. 4:15 and 16 speak truth in love the church grows and builds itself up in love 5:2 walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us 5:25 love your wives just as Christ loved the church and his final greetings at the end of chapter 6 he leaves them in love with faith from the father and the Lord Jesus grace to those who love Jesus with an undying love They started with love. Paul urged them to continue in love. What happened? It seems as though in the end, the very thing Paul wanted them to never forget is the one thing they did. And Jesus says, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Now, in 1 John, it says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. And by implication, if you do not live in love, you do not live in God, and nor does he live in you. Do you see now how grim and dire this condemnation is? The gravity behind this rebuke. Let's take a step back and assess what we have in front of us. Uh, We've been presented with these two images that seem to contradict each other. We have this one image of a church seemingly doing all the right things, but also an image of a church without love. But they're the same church. How can this be? If they don't have love, then why are we seeing them do all these good things, and what for? Well, if you are here this morning as a Christian, which I think most of you probably are, I want you to think back to when you first became a Christian, when you first realized what Christ had done for you and he changed your life. Maybe you were filled with new life, new energy. You maybe didn't understand everything in the Bible, but you loved people. You wanted to share Jesus with everyone. You wanted to talk about Jesus all the time. You felt close with him, you felt saved, maybe overwhelmed by his power and his love. I remember. I certainly felt this way. I wanted to tell all my friends about Jesus and how he had changed me. I wanted to help people. I wanted to go overseas and share to those that hadn't heard about Jesus and serve people. And even if you can't relate to that, maybe you can relate to the peace you found when you found Jesus, or the purpose. I felt peace. I felt purpose. I felt like I had found what life was all about. And I had, of course. But over time, as life gets in the way, as my sharing of Jesus just became arguing with non-Christians... As trials came along, it became difficult to not see all those things I had done at first as merely things I should do, not so much wanted to do anymore. And it's a reminder to us here at VP that as we grow and learn about God, it sometimes can be the case that we gain so much head knowledge, we leave our hearts behind. Our faith becomes mechanical or even purely dutiful. We are still doing all the right things, living the Christian life, sacrificing self. But our personal relationship with Jesus has become a chore. How sad the Christian life is when this is the case. when we miss out on the joy, the freedom that Jesus gives us. So, what to do? Well, Jesus says in verse 5, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Jesus is telling them and us to remember, repent, and do. Remember the love that was there at first, the warmth behind your actions, doing good deeds because you love Jesus, and you want to serve him, and you want others to see how good he is, having Jesus in every area of your life. Is that why you do things now? Remember, a lack of love for God is sin. And this is a sin we all struggle with at times. I know I do. There are so many distractions in this world. God isn't always where he should be on our priority list. So repent, Jesus says. Repent and bring this sin to him. Confess it to him, whether it's because of selfishness, apathy, complacency, materialism. Ask him to renew that love, that excitement, that passion. What do we do when a valued relationship begins to go stale or begins to weaken? We invest time, energy into putting life back into that relationship. Should we do less than that with our relationship with Jesus, our Savior? If you feel spiritually cold, if you know that you are struggling to love, go back to the cross. Remember how Christ saved your life through his death and resurrection. And then Jesus tells us to do. Do the things you did at first. Notice he doesn't say anything along the lines of, if you're not feeling it, if you're not in the mood, don't do it. The solution is action. Now, you often find that as you serve and as you pray, there's not just the action of love that has grown, but the affection too. Don't wait until you love people to serve, but serve, and by God's grace, he will often work love in your heart. Now, later in verse 5, Jesus says, If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What does that mean? It means that that church will not be a church anymore, not in the eyes of our Lord. He will not acknowledge them as his people, And it makes you think, doesn't it, about some of the churches out there, but also us in here, that if we are at risk of losing our first love, Jesus is saying that we are at risk of no longer being, in any recognizable sense, church. But Jesus ends his letter with a promise. In verse 7, he promises to those that are victorious. And Revelation 12, 11 explains the meaning of victorious, meaning those who overcome by sharing in Christ's conquest over evil, those that share in Christ's victory, and by the word of their testimony, he promises these people that they will eat from the tree of life. Now, this may ruin our momentum here, but I want to go on a very quick but very cool side quest. I want to talk about what the tree of life, means here to the Ephesians especially. And it's just a cool thing that Jesus does that shows that he's on another level. We know that Jesus speaks with absolute purpose and he doesn't uh, waste words. There's reason why he concludes this particular letter with these particular words. And I feel that the mention of the tree of life is intentional. Why? Well, The temple of Artemis in Ephesus was built on the site of an ancient tree shrine, a date palm tree. It was known as a refuge, as a place of salvation. There were even coins in Ephesus that had a date palm tree, which in folklore was their tree of life, stamped on them. The tree of life in Revelation was in the mind of the Ephesians, a Christianization of the sacred tree in the pagan religion and was a symbolic expression which was full of meaning to those that lived in Ephesus. Because to them, the tree had always been seen as the seat of divine life and the bridge between divine and human nature. So when the tree of life is mentioned, their ears would have perked up, and Jesus knew that. He used a broken image that they were familiar with and restores it as his to help them further comprehend his promise. Come on, that's pretty cool, right? I think so. Anyway, back to the actual promise. Jesus promises that those that are victorious will eat from the tree of life in paradise. In Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve lost access to the tree of life and were driven out from the Garden of Eden. The believer is promised that this blessing will be restored. And this is truly the fruit of the tree of life, not the false fruit of pagan religion, which is what Artemis promised her worshippers if they give their lives to her. False fruit is also the promise of modern pagan religion, a religion where if you worship all these earthly things, all these earthly treasures, you get a fruit that tastes good initially when you bite it, but leaves a bitter taste in your mouth. You may be here today, and have tasted the bitter fruit of what the world offers. Something you know that is sweet initially, but becomes bitter and you are left unsatisfied, wanting more. And can I say to you, it is not for no reason that the Bible says taste and see that the Lord is good. His ways are good and perfect, as are his promises. And the promise of eternal life in the paradise of God is ours through the cross of him who died and rose again. I'll leave you now with an image of the paradise of God. This reads from Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sustaining your church and your people. We thank you that you know us better than anyone, including ourselves. Give us what we need so that we may toil for your namesake. Please give us wisdom in teaching your word, as well as discernment in testing it, Help us to not grow weary as we live for you, but draw us in to have rest in the peace that you offer. Lord, let our love not grow cold, but may we stand firm in love till the end by your will. We pray that we will come to you in repentance so that we may keep partaking as your church. Let our eyes not fall away from you, Lord, so that we can share in your victory, so that we can eat from the tree of life, enjoying your presence forever in paradise. Amen.